We were in Acts chapter 9 last week where we were a part of a transforming and dramatic change that happens in the life of a man named Saul from Tarsus. He is a predator who is seeking to destroy the church and destroy the gospel message and on his journey to go and harass and persecute and harm uh, believers in the city of Damascus is stopped by a blinding light of which he finds out is Jesus Christ himself who appears to Saul and he asks Saul the simple question, why are you persecuting me? Why are you fighting against me? Why are you seeking to destroy the very thing that is about to give you life? Saul would come to uh, his fall to his knees and come to the grips that he was a sinner in need of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we learned last week he gets saved. He gets healed by Jesus in the, the way of uh, being blinded for three days and then using a disciple named Ananias to restore his sight. He is regained in strength and even welcomed into the Christian community. But the question is, what happens next? What happens to this individual who has had such a dramatic change by the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's next for him? Well, before we get there, I want to go ahead and read what we've got this morning. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31, I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we'll jump right into our text uh, this morning. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19. We are told at the beginning of that uh, that uh, he was baptized at the end of verse 18, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Hopefully verse 31 will be our prayer that we would experience a peace that allows us to be built up, that we would walk in the Lord and that we would multiply. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to come, to gather We thank you for this great building, Lord, that is able to facilitate this type of service, Lord. We thank you for the worship team and leading us and and directing us uh, in our thoughts uh, to you and your sacrifice and your goodness to us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church and pray. 
to lift up our concerns and our our uh, um, anxieties and worries, Lord, and our praise to you. Uh, Lord, now as we turn to your word, I pray that we would be challenged by it. Lord, I pray that we would uh, look to our own lives and not to the lives of others, but look to ourselves and ask the question, Lord, what would you have for me this morning? Lord, I pray for the preaching and the worship that's going forth in, in church communities around us. Lord, I lift up Christ Community Church and Harvest Bible Chapel, Calvary West, Lord. And, and I thank you for the ministries that they are a part of. Thank you for their diligence in serving you and honoring you and seeking to glorify you in all that they say and do. Empower their leaders, Lord. Empower their people to walk boldly before you, Lord, that we might partner together as brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, do a work of change in the Fox Valley area and throughout the world. Lord, I think of uh, our four campuses, and I thank you for those who are now standing up and preaching. I think of Pastor Phil in Indian Creek, and Pastor Travis at Aurora, and, and Pastor Nico at our El Camino campus, Lord. And and then, Lord, I think of Pastor Steve, who's preaching out at Plano right now, Lord, and just pray for that entire process as they consider adoption of what could be a fifth campus, Lord. We just thank you that you've given us the ability and you've given us the people to be able to proclaim your gospel message. So, Lord, I pray at each of the churches that call themselves village, Lord, that you would allow them to speak boldly and proclaim, um, Lord, with great... Um, excitement and passion, uh, all that you've done. So Lord, as we now come to uh, a time of learning, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might hear you and we might see you moving in our lives. Thank you for Paul's example uh, of what it means to be a missional Christian. And I pray to that end that we will uh, be there as well. In Christ's name, Lord, we ask all these things. Amen and amen. Well, we come past the dramatic and transforming uh, power of Jesus Christ in the life of Paul. He, of course, in the text, his name's Saul, but I'm just going to call him Paul because that's what he would be called from this point on as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He would go on to serve and to impact the lives of countless people, including us today, because his ministry would go forth to the Gentile nations of which we are one, right? So uh, we have to ask the question this morning, amidst the dramatic change that, that Paul was a part of on the road to Damascus, we have to ask the question, what's next for this guy? What's next? You know, in, in our world, in our Christian culture, we see our conversion or the conversion of our friends and family as the finish line instead of the starting block. Many of us think that if we can just get someone saved and, and, and be able to be assured of our eternal salvation, well, that's the ball game. But what we're going to learn in Paul's life is that the road to Damascus was only the beginning for him. That yes, he was converted on that road. He was baptized in Damascus by Ananias. He was encouraged in the faith by a small group of followers of Jesus Christ. But there was much more to be done. Uh, 
But sadly in our culture today, we have many who will say, well, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and the last thing that they can really talk about is their conversion experience. They haven't grown out of the nursery of newborn Christianity into adult, if you will, ministry. And as a result of that, we have a lot of people, and even here at a healthy and vibrant church like Village, who are sitting the sidelines content with allowing other people to do the ministry instead of them involving themselves in that process. I want to call that kind of Christianity this morning mothball Christianity, and here's the reason why. I learned recently that we have a fleet of ships in our Navy. They're called the mothball fleet. Go ahead and show you some of them. In different harbors all around the United States, we have not dozens, but hundreds of ships, aircraft carriers, battleships, destroyers, frigates, you name it. We've got all kinds of ships all over the United States, and they're just sitting there. They're being maintained. They're make sure that they have everything that they need at some point to be ready for battle. But no battle has ever taken place, and they just stay there. You see, these were uh, battleships, and these were ships that were used in former conflicts, or at times maybe they weren't even used in any kind of battle, but they were built and left to be used at some future time. Well, like these ships, there are many Christians who find themselves, instead of in the battle, waiting and sitting collecting barnacles. They're being maintained, they're being ministered to within the church where they attend, but they find themselves not living up to what they were called to do. We have a mothball navy, but sadly, and even greater of greater importance to understand today is we have a mothball Christianity. We have a lot of people who are sitting idly by, allowing the commands and the calling of Christ to pass them by. They think they arrived when they asked Jesus into their heart, but as we're going to look in Paul's life, there was a whole lot that Paul was about to embark upon. So what is mothball Christianity? Write this down. Mothball Christianity are those who are content... Those who are content to relegate themselves to the sidelines. Is that you this morning? Have you said, you know what? I've arrived. I've done all that I need to. And to go into the game might cause injury. To go into the game might cause uh, more drama than I'm willing to put up with. And so I'm okay with sitting on the sideline. And notice that uh, this uh, mothball Christian, Christianity is living each and every day in a spiritual maintenance mode. Just enough to maintain your Christianity, but never stepping out in faith, never uh, asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have of me to do? Well, here at Village Bible Church, we don't want to be a church filled with mothball Christians. We want Christians that are alive and active. We want them in the world, serving Christ, honoring Christ in all that they say and do. And so how do we get there? We look at patterns or we look at models like Paul this morning. You see, for many of us, and this is where mothball Christianity will come in, you will say, Tim, how in the world can you compare us to the Apostle Paul? This guy was a persecutor of the faith before he came to know Christ. This guy experienced the revelation of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. This guy experienced a physical malady given by God himself to him and then was healed. Listen, we're not even in the same 
stratosphere. So why would you use Paul as an example of how I am today in the Fox Valley area in the year 2018, how I am supposed to live my life unto Christ? Paul tells us that we should. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he says the following. He says, my conversion and my calling are a pattern to all of you. He says, the way I came to know Christ and the way I've been called to serve Christ isn't something simply that we put away and say that's an extraordinary event. Paul himself says this is a pattern of how God is working in each and every one of our lives as Christ followers. Now you say, how can that be? I wasn't a persecutor. I didn't experience Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, I've never been blinded by God. I've never had my sight restored by God as a result of that. I'm not like him. Well, here's what Paul is meaning. You're a sinner just as he was, who was saved by the amazing and abundant grace of Jesus Christ. And God has saved you, and He is loving you, and He is ministering to you. That same Holy Spirit that Paul had uh, placed in his life is the same Holy Spirit that is now living in each and every Christ follower today. Just as God called him to a ministry, God has called us to a ministry. And just as God told Paul, what I begin in you, I will see and be faithful to bring it to the day of completion. So God's promise is faithful and sure that what he has started in you, Christ follower, he will bring to completion. It's a pattern. It's a pattern of how Christ does things. And we saw that last week. But what does this pattern look like? What God is doing is, listen, God is not saving you. God is not bringing you to become a follower of his just for you to sit on the sideline. If that was the case, if there was nothing to do after conversion, the moment you accepted Christ, he would have just raptured us out of here. And so he's left us here for a purpose. He's left us here for a reason. What is that? It is to be missional. It is to be on mission for Christ. There is no greater missional Christian than, than the Apostle Paul himself. He gave his life and his, his comfort and his time and his energy for the cause of Jesus Christ in his world. And that's what God is calling us to. So How do we get there? Well, we've got to recognize three things this morning if we want to be missional Christians. Number one, if we want to be a missional Christian, we need to recognize, number one, and we cannot miss this, and I'm going to invest a lot of time here, God has a plan for you, so live life on purpose. God has a plan for you, so live your life on purpose. Now I'm going to back up from uh, verse 19, and I'm going to go back into the text we looked at last week. And my first point is going to come from verses 15 and 16. So let's look at that real quick. So he's in Damascus, and in fact, these words that are going to be shared are God sharing them to Ananias, not even to the Apostle Paul. But notice in verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Let's stop there for a moment. The first thing that Ananias is told about Paul is that God has use for people. God has a use 
for people. Now, I think it is kind of ironic that he says to Ananias, I'm going to use Saul as an instrument of my use. Now, in fact, he has said that Saul or Paul is going to be an instrument, but notice Ananias is an instrument as well, right? He's going saying, Ananias, I want you to do something. I want you to be used. So he's using as an instrument of his Ananias to be the one who will go and speak to Paul, who will encourage Paul, who will at some point heal and baptize Paul. He's being used as an instrument. Now, Paul is being told he is going to be an instrument. And what we need to recognize this morning is we have a God who uses people for his grace and glory. He had says that Paul or Saul was going to be a chosen instrument. The first thing I want you to recognize out of that is it says that he is not the only instrument that he is not the first or the last instrument, but that word or that letter really, A, he is a instrument, one of many. And one of the things that we've got to recognize as Christ followers is when we come to know Christ, God has something for us. Paul would say later on in his ministry, for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works that any man could boast of. So it's not of us. It's all of Christ. He has done it all. And we, by His grace and mercy, are able to be a part of His family. We are empowered to become children of God. But that's not the finish line. If that's where the end of the chapter was, then we would know that's all we got to do. We just got to come to faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But Paul says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, works that our God has prepared for us in advance to do. There is a list of things that the Lord has for you and I to complete. And that list is specifically uh, designated for you based on your experiences, based on your personality, based on, on who you are, your gifts and your abilities, based on where you live. God has a purpose for you. And the job of the Christian is to figure that purpose out and then to live according to that as God's chosen instrument. I want you to know this morning that that truth changed my life. When I was uh, about 15 years of age, about a year after my older brother had been killed in a car accident, and I've shared this before, but my older brother was the most popular, one of the most good-looking, one of the most charismatic guys that you could know. Senior in high school, homecoming king. I mean, he just had everything going for him. And as a younger brother, I lived perpetually in that shadow. And when he died, you got to understand something. When you're alive and you're popular and all that, you're still mortal. But when you die, you become immortal, right? And my brother became immortal in my local high school. And I fell into this idea that if I was going to be loved, if I was going to have any impact in this world, I needed to become, listen, it was a warped idea back then and it still is today. I need to become like him. I need to act like him. I need to talk like him. I need to dress like him. Because no one's going to accept me for who I am unless I become something else. And then the youth pastor from this church took me out one day. And he said, why are you living a lie? Why are you living someone else's life? 
Don't you know God? He could have created two Chris's, but he didn't. He created a Chris with all the bumps and warts and bruises and, and idiosyncrasies that your brother had. As great as he was, he was a flawed creature. But he created you. And he created you to be you, not to be someone else, not to run someone else's race, but to be you. And that man looked at me straight in the eye and he says, God's got a plan for you. And with tears in my eyes, he says, I can't see it. I don't believe it. And that man prophetically said, listen, I don't know what your brother could have done or would have done. And he knew my brother well, but he's gone. He lived in his generation and God has taken him home. What are you going to do in your generation and in your time with the gifts and the abilities God had given? Listen, the reason why he had spent time with me is I had just been arrested for a crime. Why would a guy say that, right? 15-year-old kid. My parents say, hey, go spend time with our kid. He just got arrested. He's falling apart. And that man had enough ability and enough forethought by the grace of God to say, listen, you criminal, you thug, Timbadal, 15 years of age, God's got a plan for you. And who would have thought? Especially those who were around when I was 15. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that God would do such a thing? And I want you to know this morning, it isn't just true for the Apostle Paul. It isn't just true for your pastor. God has a plan for you. He has a plan. And he wants you to live with that purpose and that plan. And here's what he reminds us of. A couple things. Number one, as he gives this plan, he's not going to leave you nor forsake you in it, but he is going to be continually as that plan unfolds. What he's going to do is he's going to walk alongside us in this process. He's going to make sure that we have everything that we need. It wasn't like Paul was given this job. You're going to be my chosen instrument, so good luck. I hope you figure it out on your own. I hope you find the, the requisite time and energy and giftings that you need to make this plan unfold. It wasn't like he was kicked out of the nest and, and God said, okay, figure it out on your own. But he says he is going to be a chosen instrument. Notice what he says of, help me out, mine. There's a possession there. We are an instrument of God's and God wants to use us. This last year on Black Friday, I splurged and bought myself a brand new snowblower. Okay? Became the envy of all people in Hinkley. Okay? And I bought it. And you know what one of the concerns I had was? As soon as I buy it, what was going to happen this winter? It wasn't going to snow. Why? Because I had an instrument that I didn't want to sit around. I wanted to be excited. So we got a half an inch of snow and I'm out there with this massive snowblower. And all my neighbors are going, there's crazy man Tim again. Why? Because I've got this instrument that I want to put to use. I want it, the, the purpose of that snowblower is not to sit in my garage. It is to throw thousands of tons of snow a hundred feet from where I'm standing. And I love it and I want to see it and I'm praying we get five inches of snow today. So I can rev that sucker up and we can start moving some snow. 
Some of you are content with sitting in God's garage. Some of you are content with God saving you and purchasing you with His own blood so that you can sit and never be used by God. I'll tell you, God loves using His instruments. God gets excited. The boys want to use the snowball. I said, no, this is my toy. Stay away. Okay? God wants to use you because when he sees you living out what you were created for, there is something that is awesome. And here's the thing. When I get to use that snowblower, you know what I say? It was a good investment. Right? It was a good investment. I paid a price, and now it is returning yields for me. What God has saved us for is not so that we can sit in his garage or on his workbench as an instrument that's there. He wants to show the world this was a wise investment. I have paid for this individual's uh, sins. I have taken care of them. I have ministered to them. And now watch as the master, I get to use these instruments for my glory so that others may be impacted. Notice he is continually active in our lives. He'll never leave you. He will live with you. He will guide you. He will direct you. Uh, Every time that I felt unqualified for something that God has called me to, I've been reminded of this axiom that I will never forget. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So he's going to meet you. He's going to take care of you, and he's going to give you what you need to accomplish it, and he's going to walk alongside you in that process. Number two of this uh, plan. It's a plan that we've been given, and it is a crucial activity. We've got a job to do. God has turned this persecutor into a worshiper. And God simply hadn't just had this guy change sides. He had a purpose and a plan for him. And notice what this activity was in verse 15. It was to carry the name of Christ. Notice he says, he's my chosen instrument of mine. He's possessing these instruments to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That word carry in the English translation, or maybe one of your Bibles might say bear, to bear my name. The reason why translators use different words is that there is a two-sided idea or definition to this word carry. The first way that the Greeks would use this word carry is the idea literally to bear. And what it meant was to bear one's name was to identify oneself with a family. So when I say, hi, good morning, Village Bible Church, my name is Tim, that doesn't tell you anything. But when I say my name is Tim Badal, I bear the name of a clan of people that are called the Badals. Now, if you have been around this area for some time, and, and you've, you've lived life around here, you know that, well, where are the Badal clans at? Well, there's a whole group of them out in Hinkley. I wonder if this Tim, who named, whose name that he bears is Badal, is the bearer of a name because he's the son of Bill and Michelle Badal. Now, what many people will do, I was at a basketball game this last Friday and I was walking through the hallway and someone came up and they heard me talking and he came up and he said, boy, your dad wouldn't be Bill Badal, would he? I said, yeah, how'd you know that? He says, I heard it. I could hear it. I heard the voice. 
I heard Bill's voice. I bear the name, the, uh, the duplication, if you will, of who, whose name I'm carrying. I look like Bill. I talk like Bill. Sadly, I'm starting to smell like Bill. I mean, it's just, it just is what it is, right? Because I bear his name. When, when, when Jesus tells Ananias, Paul is going to bear my name, what it says is he's going to identify, people are going to see him as one of my own. He's going to look like me. He's going to sound like me. He's going to act like me. He's going to love like me. He's going to lead like me. He's going to minister like me. He is going to be like me. When you see Paul, you're going to see he bears my name because he's living life as I commanded him to. The second thing that this bearing means is it also means to carry. To carry. So one, to place upon myself who Christ is, to look like him and to act like him and respond as he did. But second, it's to carry. Literally, to be a conduit from point A to point B. So the Greeks would use this word to say that uh, uh, someone who was a herald would carry the message of the king from the king's court to the people in the villages throughout the empire, throughout the countryside. And so they would have the job of carrying, literally in some ways with their own hands, this message that was to get from point A to point B. Now, this is an important thing that I don't want you to miss. This phrase carry gives us two jobs that we have as Christians. Number one, we are, and this is the activity that we're to be a part of, we are to be living our lives in such a way that when people see us walking through the hallway of the school, when they see us at the workplace, when they see us in the neighborhood, they see us, but they're reminded of whom? Christ. Wait, aren't you a follower of Jesus's? Don't you bear his name? And then at that point, once we have shown the world that we are bearers of the name of Jesus, we then are to carry the gospel message. We are told in Galatians chapter 1, which is a parallel passage to Acts 9, that the message that Paul was given to carry was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have two jobs. One, to live like Christ. And two, to preach Christ to a world around us. Now, right away, some of us mothball Christians are saying, you know what? We'll leave that to the pastors. We'll leave that to the missionaries. We'll leave that to those who are gifted in evangelism. But I want you to know the pastors and the evangelists and the teachers and the leaders and the missionaries weren't the only ones who were given the Great Commission. We all were. So we need to live like Christ. We need to love like Christ. And then we need to tell people the message of Christ. We need to be the conduit that takes the gospel message from the life that we've had experienced in Him to the world that needs to hear it. Peter put it this way. That we are called to carry the message of the one who called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Hey, I used to be in the darkness just like you, but now I've seen the light. God has shown me the light. And as you've seen, my life is different than it used to be. Paul used to bear the name Pharisee. Now he bore the name of worshiper and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to, a crucial activity. 
Number three, it would cause us to be placed before a certain audience. Let's sit at verse 15 still. What was the audience? Where was he going to serve? Notice three places he is going to serve. He's going to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, one, kings, two, and the children of Israel, three. Now, when Luke gives that list, when we see that, one of the things that we need to recognize is is that many scholars believe that the reason why he lists it this way is he's declaring the priority of Paul. So Ananias is being told, what's his priority going to be? Well, number one, it's going to be to the Gentiles. And then number two priority is he's going to have opportunities to preach to kings and rulers and all those in authority. And number three, he will have a ministry to his own kinsmen, the children of Israel. And so there's this priority given. Amidst all the people that Paul could go preach to on that day in Damascus, he's given a job of where he's going to go. The job? To live like Christ, to love like Christ, and to preach like Christ. Who is he to do it to? First of all, to Gentiles, second to kings, and third to the children of Israel. Now that stops us and asks the question this morning, what audience has God placed you in to model Christianity and to preach Christianity to other people. Who are your, who's your list? Your Gentiles, your kings, and your children of Israel. If you were to ask the question this morning, God, where have you uniquely placed me? We are in a setting, if you think about it, a 50 mile setting, because most of what we do, it's really crazy, right? I mean, as human beings, we live and do life in about a 50-mile radius. We go to work in that 50-mile radius. We're entertained and, and have uh, relationships within that 50-mile radius. Here's the problem. In a 50-mile radius from where we're standing right now is about 5 million people. So who am I called to? Lord, who am I to be proclaiming to? Who am I to preach to? Well, number one, if you're a married individual and have a family, number one, your family is your number one responsibility. Okay? So you need to be preaching and declaring to them and living for them. What good is it for me to have more and more uh, people in my church and more and more campuses a part of our church if the Badal family is falling apart? So i got to focus in on that. And many of us have abdicated that role of ministering to our families. Well, that's the number one priority. Number two, where do you live? What good is it for me to, uh, to go and preach all other places when my community is lost? And I've told you this, and I've been honest with you. One of my great struggles week in and week out is I live in Hinkley. I drive the 11 miles here, and I'm a part of a vibrant and healthy church here. And one of the things that I'm constantly reminded of is I'm leaving town. I want to preach to them. You're great people, but God has given me a burden to see my neighbors and my friends. And by His grace, praise God, we've seen lots of neighbors and lots of friends from the Hinkley community come and and find Jesus and make their place here. And so we got to look and say, where has God placed me? And this is going to ask the question, where do I live? Where do I work? And what you want to begin to do is ask the question, God, why did you place me here? Acts 17 says that God has built the boundaries of where your dwelling will be. And so God has put you in your neighborhood, not because you and your spouse like the house, 
or like the street. God placed you there because it says, I want a light somewhere in the vicinity of 410 Prairie View Lane in Hinkley, Illinois. Tim, you've got a job to do. Amanda, you've got a job to do. To be a light to your community. Why did God give you the job that he did? So that you might put together widgets and, or be a great salesman or, or whatever you find yourself doing. Is that why? Maybe a little bit. But even greater than that is, is that so that workplace, that factory, that school, that office building might have a light because it is pitch black in darkness. And it needs someone who's going to go every day, by the way, get paid to do it, go every day so that you might model and you might be the conduit of the gospel of Jesus Christ to that world. What family has God put you in? What workplace? What neighborhood? And then ask the question, when we live as missional Christians on purpose, why did God give me that opportunity to be in that checkout line? Why did God have me get to know that mechanic? Why did God allow me to engage with that stranger? Every moment of your life will be used in a way to ask the question, God, what are you wanting to do here? What are you wanting to accomplish? You see, missional Christians recognize God has a plan, and then we, we find out who our priority is, and then we position ourselves to live that out. Are you living today your life on purpose. God wants you to. Number two, I said first one long, second one will go shorter, third one will be flying by the seat of our pants, okay? So number two, we need to recognize God is patient. He's patient with your growth, so persevere in the process. So right away, you say, wait a minute, Tim. This guy goes from being a persecutor of the faith And in lickety-split time, he's now preaching and proclaiming. And there's half-truth to that. He did right away start proclaiming. If you look in verse uh, 19 and beyond, we see that uh, very quickly he is increasing in power. But he starts to preach. And that's what a lot of times young believers do, right? We're so excited about our faith. We're so excited about what we've learned and the grace we've experienced that we want to share it with everybody we can. We want to be bold, but as we get older and as we've been a believer for a longer period of time, that begins many times to wane. But Paul, he preaches. But I want you to notice, and we read this, and we say, it just happened, boom, 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 boom. It just, it moved. And what I can read in about two minutes happened over a period of a couple days. Not so. I want you to notice a couple things that are said. And we read right by it, and then we lose perspective on what's going on. Notice in uh, verse 23. When many days had passed, we have no idea what he means by that, but many days means a lot, a lot of days. This could have been weeks, it could have been months, we don't know. But it is a period of time. Now, go back and it says uh, in verse, uh, let's see here, uh, 19, for some days he was with the disciples. So we are seeing for some days and then for many days, Luke is saying time has passed. This is not a running commentary on the daily activities of Paul. We don't have the whole story. We don't have, these are highlights. And so there was a lot of time that passed. 
And we don't know right from Acts chapter 9 how much time had passed. That's why we got to move to Galatians chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 1 for a moment. Galatians 1, if you're in the book of Acts, just go through Acts and Romans to the right. First and second Corinthians. And then you come to the book of Galatians. So keep your finger in Acts chapter 9. But we come to Galatians. Paul is the writer of Galatians. Galatians is one of the earliest books that, that Paul writes to a church in Galatia, which is in modern day Turkey or Asia Minor. And this is what he says in Acts, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, For I would, would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught, uh, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Let's just stop there. After coming to know Jesus Christ... It says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Notice verse 17. Nor did I go to Jerusalem uh, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Well, how long were you there, Paul? Notice verse uh, 18. Then after, help me out, three years, three years, I went to Jerusalem. So let's just stop. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. So let's just make sure we're dotting all our little dots here. Okay? Acts chapter 9. Look at verse, let's see here, 23. That there was a time where, where Paul preached in Damascus for a season. And then it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples or the apostles, right? How long was that time? Help me out. Three years. So we've got three years of time. I want you to recognize this morning, one of the plans that God has for you is to grow in the grace and knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's going to involve a couple of things. Number one, it's going to involve time time. It's going to involve time. Now, now three years, three years, that's a, that's a lot of time. That's 1,095 days. Let me do the math real quick. 1,095 days. That's two, 26,280 hours. I think. Yeah, I crossed. Yep. Okay. All right. That's a lot of time. And we think that God did this, you know, flash, boom, it was all done. But this was a process. And some of us are wondering, where's my ministry? Where's my opportunity? Where am I going to make my splash? And God has said, listen, I'm a patient God. We talked about this earlier in the book of Acts, but let me just highlight it again. God is not as expedient with your time as we are. God has plenty of time to wait. God waited decades before he gave Abraham a son. 
God waited 40 years before he would come and, and uh, speak to Moses in a burning bush. God waited 13 years for Joseph to endure lots of trials and tribulations before he had him ascend to be prime minister of Egypt. And God was going to wait not just three years, but when you do the math of Paul's life, as you chronicle his life, it would be 14 years before Paul's ministry really would take off. I want you to notice something very important. It's very theological in uh, Acts chapter 9. And don't ever forget this, okay? I want you to notice something at the beginning of, uh, or at the end of verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26. Do you see what I'm talking about there? That white space? Do you see that white space between those two verses? That is a theological moment. That is a moment where God was working and growing and ministering to a man who needed to become more like Christ. And some of us find ourselves in that white space between the verses, right? And in that moment, our human desires and our human experiences, how long, Lord? When is this going to end? I've been patient. I waited three minutes, right? couple, about a month ago, I asked some of my boys to uh, help rake leaves. And Luke comes out, and Luke's Johnny on the spot. And Luke, we're going to rake leaves. And then all of a sudden, about five minutes later, Luke is gone. And I go inside, and I said, hey, Luke, where'd you go? The job's not done. He said, when you asked for help, I thought minutes, not hours. All right? And some of us are on the minute clock instead of the hour, day, week, month, year clock that God may be. And we're like, we're done. God, you, you must have left me. You must have forgotten about me because I can't sit in this waiting room. And I want you to know the best people in God's ministry seem to wait the longest. So the longer we wait, usually God's up to even a bigger thing than we would have ever imagined. And I want you to recognize sometimes God is going to put us in a time of waiting. Now, what is he doing in this time of waiting? We're told he goes to Arabia. Probably he's in Damascus, which is in the city of, or is in the country of Syria. He probably headed to the deserts of Jordan, which would have been the neighboring country uh, from where he was at. Called Arabia. Okay? And he goes and he hangs out there and we're not told what he does. And so speculation flies. What's he doing in Arabia? Now, a couple of things that we know about Arabia experience that maybe helps us to understand what was happening. Number one, Paul never writes a letter from Arabia that we have. He doesn't uh, build a church or, or uh, grow a church in Arabia. We have no mention of any mass or widespread ministry going on in Arabia. We don't even hear that, by the way, I met so-and-so in Arabia. So what we've seemingly got is Paul by himself. He may have had some opportunities to meet and interact and preach the gospel to some people. But Chuck Swindoll, on his biography of the Apostle Paul, puts it this way. He calls it, and I've got to find it here in my notes, he calls it the uh, solitude and quietness and obscurity chapter of Paul's life. He's by himself. But let us remember, Christian, are we ever by ourselves? No. During that time, Galatians 1 says, as he would be revealed things from the Lord. 
And so I want you to know when you're waiting, and maybe you're waiting right now, there are a couple things that I want you to be thinking about that I believe what Paul was doing. Number one, he was being trained. He was being trained. Here's a guy who had been trained in Judaism, but he didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. He was trained in all the bells and whistles and all of the activities of the Jewish faith, but he did not know what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I think during that time, by the grace and revelation of Jesus Christ and by God's power, he was given a, a crash course, a seminary course on what it means not only to be a Christian, but to be a church planner, a missionary, to be a preacher and proclaimer of the truth of God. And maybe right now you're waiting, and you're wondering, why am I waiting? And the answer is because God wants to train you. And that may mean formal education. That may mean some informal education. That may be that you need to have some experiences in your life. Maybe you need some things in your life that, that need to make you stronger. For those that are struggling right now with being single and saying, I want a mate, don't look at this time as a languishing time. If you really believe God's called you to have a, a spouse, then this time is a time where you're training, where you're preparing yourself to be the best husband, the best wife, the best parent, if God wills, for you to be. You don't sit there and say, I'll learn those processes when you give me that task. Lord, I'm going to prepare now. I'm going to sit under your teaching and learn. For those that want higher levels of ministry, it may involve listening and training and experiencing things so that when God is good and ready, you're ready for the opportunity. You're ready and willing to act as God has called you to. It's a time of training. Notice the second one, and this one's a little harder to swallow. I think in Arabia, God was giving Paul, and I'm going to use this word and use it lightly, therapy. Therapy. I don't mean psychobabble and all of that, but I mean God was working on the heart of his child. Let's remember, Paul was a persecutor. Listen, Paul was going to preach to a people. This is really important. Don't miss this. He is one day going to preach to a people where as he's preaching Christ, someone raises a hand and said, yeah, I get what you're preaching, but you killed my brother you incarcerated my dad you came and you devastated my community when i was a young boy and you destroyed everything that was going on we had come to know jesus and we loved jesus and you came in and you destroyed homes and you took away parents and you separated families and i want you to know i want you to think about the absolute guilt that Paul must have had of the bondage of the things he used to live, the issues that he used to struggle with. And some of us this morning have come from a life in Christ, or life apart from Christ, where we've done things we're ashamed of. We've done things that uh, we can't get over the guilt. And God puts us in the desert experience and takes time to uh, change you and to deal with those things. And he doesn't erase them, but maybe he allows the scarring to come over it so that you can be reminded of it, but you're not defined by it anymore. You're not living in anguish with it anymore. Don't think that if you're waiting, God has forgotten you. Listen, some of the best work God does is in the waiting rooms of your life. Okay? 
Be patient and persevere through that. I wonder how many times Paul would have said, really, Lord, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Let's go. And God said, a little more time. Just a little more time. Number three, and we'll close with this and we'll do so quickly. We see that God, now he has a plan. And not only is God patient, but God has a path for you. So press on toward the goal. A path is a very unique place. You're going to walk this thing. You're going to go along this with the journey. And that's what he's going to do. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see he comes to Jerusalem. Verse 26, he's been in the desert experience. And he comes to Jerusalem, and I, I bet you he's thinking, this is going to be great. I'm going to meet Peter, and I'm going to meet John, and I'm going to meet all of these other disciples. I love Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you want to be with people who love Jesus. And in verse 26, I'm going to get to be with the apostles. I'm going to get to hang with these guys that I have so much now in common with. And so he comes into Jerusalem, and what happens? He attempts to join them, and they're like, uh-uh. Nope. Club's closed. I don't want you here. We don't want you here. Why? Because we, we're not sure if you've really changed. We're not sure if you are really who you say you are, that you're the real deal. I want you to notice when you take a step for the Lord, when you walk His path, some will doubt and push you away. Some will doubt you, write that down, they'll doubt you and they'll push you away. What they'll say is, are you sure? You are who you say you are. You sure that you've been given that calling? One of the most difficult things, listen, one of the most difficult things for me in becoming the pastor of this church was I had dear friends in this church. Okay? Right? Sitting right over here, Al Gonerman came up and he said, listen, we, the elders have come to the conclusion that Tim Bedall is to be the preaching pastor of our church. And there was a friend of mine sitting right over there and he got up and he threw his hands. He says, this is craziness and walked out of the church. A lot of people would agree with them. Okay? I was 26 years old. Okay? You think I'm crazy now? Think about how immature I was back then. And it broke my heart. Because I sat there and said, I love that man. We've spent time together. His wife and and my wife called themselves friends. and, And the guy said, this is craziness. And sometimes our callings are going to be doubted and pushed away by others. And we need to take stock in that. So listen, one thing you need to be careful with is if everybody's telling you, godly wisdom is telling you that you're not to be in that role, maybe you need to stop and say, maybe that's the case. But if a lot of people are affirming it and there's one or two, even if they are central figures in your life, sometimes they may be wrong. I'm going to say in all humility, in light of the last 15 years, my friend was probably wrong. Hopefully you would amen that, right? But it's going to happen. And sometimes you're going to say, God, you've called me to this and your wife's going to look at you and go, are you crazy? Or your parents are going to come. I remember talking with my parents and my father cried when I said, I think I'm called to the ministry. He cried. He's like, huh, that's going to be a hard life. Cater, that's easy. You can sleep at night when you're a caterer. You're a pastor. You got to deal with people's souls. You sure? And so sometimes we're going to be called to things that people are going to doubt. And that's okay. God uses that to strengthen us. It gives us some moxie to make sure, are we really the real deal or not? The apostles say, Paul, yeah, we're not sure about you. 
But when God calls us, he will inevitably have someone who will come. Notice this path can be disappointing without partners. This is the second time I've used a very similar line in two weeks. Ananias was last week. Barnabas is this week. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the guy who's always encouraging, puts his arm around in verse 27, his arm around Paul. He brings Paul to the apostles and he says, listen, I can vouch for this guy. He's the real deal. And there were people in my life when my ministry calling was come together, they put their arm around me and said, I can attest to this guy. I can attest to God working in his life. And God's going to do that. He's going to bring a partner. He's going to put that arm around you of that partner. And he's going to encourage you. But notice a couple things and I'll close. It's going to demand total participation. Paul would say later on, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm being spent. Being a missional Christian is not something we do on Sundays. It's not something we do when we're around other Christians. It involves total participation. And we're going to learn Saul's going to suffer. He's going to suffer greatly. And maybe God's called you to a life of suffering. Maybe he's called to a life of ease. That's the sovereign plan and will of God. He gets to determine that. But you've got to be all in. You've got to be all in carrying your cross and following Jesus. This missional thing isn't a one and done. It is an ongoing participation. It demands all of us. And notice finally, it's a destination. There's a destination that's promised. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians, and I will close with this, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says before you close out here. All of us who are mature should embrace this point of view. Have you embraced that? Have you embraced that God's got a calling in your life, that God has a plan for you, that God is patiently making you something different than you are? Then walk that path, as difficult as that path may be. And God says when you walk that path, he is faithful to see it done all the way to completion. Are you sitting in a harbor somewhere, on the sideline somewhere, collecting dust? Or are you on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that has saved you and has made you into a new creature so that you can now go and win and change the world where God has placed you? I pray you will do that for your good and for God's glory.